The title of this morning's message is Jesus, Hard-Pressed But Not Abandoned. This morning we're going to look at how Jesus handled pressure, specifically the pressure he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane and the pressure he felt on the cross. I believe we will see that it was through his relationship with his Father that he was able to overcome the pressures of life and the pressures put upon him in bringing forth the finished work of the cross. I assure you, Jesus was truly hard-pressed. But I assure you even more that he was never abandoned. I believe it was what Jesus knew that got him through his passion and his death on the cross. What he knew was this, that he was God's beloved son, and that he was one with God the Father, and that he knew he could do nothing apart from his Father. I believe Jesus relied on the truth and the reality of his relationship and his connection to his Father throughout his entire life, but especially to get him through his passion and his death. John 5:19 says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And I believe that these are the same things that we need to remember when we're experiencing pressure in our life, that we are sons of God, that we are one with the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, and that we too can do nothing apart from our Father. John 15:5 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Like Jesus, understanding our relationship with God the Father is paramount to being able to handle the pressures that life brings into our life, that comes into our life. I looked up the word pressure in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and it said this, Pressure is the act of pressing or urging with force. So pressure is some kind of force pushing us to act in a certain way. There are all different kinds of pressure. There's pressure caused by temptation. Temptation pushes us to act contrary to what we know is best for us. There's situational pressure, circumstantial pressure. Pressure caused by circumstances like unexpected bills in the mail. You're like, ooh, how am I going to do that? (laughs) Unexpected car repairs. The pressure that those things need to be taken care of can start to weigh very heavy on us. And then there's the pressure of other people's expectations. There's the pressure caused by physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. Pain is always a very powerful pressure that can push us to act outside of who we are in Christ. So we're going to look at Jesus' prayer in the garden and what actually happened on the cross. Jesus underwent pressure all the days of his life. Jesus knew who he was and why he was here on this earth from an early age. Now that's quite a weight, if you will, to be 12 years old and know that you are called to be the sinless Lamb of God and a sin offering. That you're not going to live to be 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. That you're not going to get married. That's quite a weight. But Jesus knew this at a very early age. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, it says this. This is where Jesus was left behind at the temple. And his parents went looking for him because he wasn't with the the troop that was going home. (laughs) And 
he said to them when they found him, his mother said, how could you do this to us? <laughs> and he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? It was about the age of 12 that young Jewish boys began in their father's business. It was also that one year, age 12, where the young man could be either with his father most of the time or he could be with his mother most of the time. Because prior to that, up till age 12, children were always with their mother. At age 13, young men were always with their father. So it's only age 12 where Jesus could be left behind. <laughs> because mama thought, well, he's with his dad. And dad thought, well, he's with his mama. And he says, no, I'm about my father's business. So even at age 12, Jesus knew what his calling was. And that's quite a wait for a 12-year-old. Jesus already knew for himself who his real father was at age 12. We don't know how he knows. It doesn't give us any explanation how he knew that his actual father was God in heaven. But he knew. Jesus knew that he was called to fulfill his father's business plan, the plan of salvation. Jesus already understood to some degree what kind of pressure his calling would bring into his life. Jesus was 100% human. So often it's easy for us to think of Jesus like Superman. <laughs> but Philippians tells us that Jesus emptied himself of all of his God abilities because in order to be a good high priest and represent humanity, he had to be perfectly human but without sin, which is exactly what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus endured the pressure of temptation the same way we do. The flesh came knocking on his door. Satan came knocking on his door. People's expectations kept knocking on his door. <laughs> and he had pressures that we can't even begin to think and understand, think about. We know that Jesus' father died sometime in his life. But yet Jesus, after he began his ministry, raised the dead. How do you think his family felt about that? He had pressure we can't even understand. Jesus overcame the pressures that he faced the same way we do. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us there come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus needed his Father and the Holy Spirit, even though he himself was divine. He didn't walk in those special superpowers. He wasn't omniscient. So often you'll hear ministers say, well, Jesus knew everything. No, Jesus did not know everything. He had to operate in the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. He had to operate in the gifts of the Spirit the same way born-again, Spirit-filled people do today. He had to walk it out just like us. That means he didn't know all the answers to the test. <laughs> Jesus, as a human being, needed God's divine enablement and influence upon his heart. And one of the ways that we see throughout the Scripture that Jesus had pressure was the pressure that came from other people's expectations. In John chapter 7, 1 through 5, it says this, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he 
did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers therefore said to him, now I'm going to read this with a little bit of attitude. Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you do. <laughs> For no one does anything in secret while he seeks himself to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, I see, that's how I hear it when I read it, because they were ticked off. <laughs> you think you're all that in a bag of chips? Well, fine. <laughs> well, this is his family. This is his brothers, his sisters. Jesus was not doing what they thought he should do. His family, when he first started his ministry, came and said, we're taking him home. He's out of his mind. Because he had went and got 12 disciples and had declared to him that he was the Messiah. Now, Mary knew. Mary didn't understand what it meant that he was going to be the sinless lamb. She, too, along with everybody else, thought uh, a Messiah is going to come and raise up an army and we're going to overtake Rome and set up the kingdom. He had no idea what he was actually called. So Jesus was never understood. You see that in the scripture over and over and over. Disciples did not get it. <laughs> Even when he would tell them plainly, they would not get it. But Jesus couldn't live by other people's expectations of him. He couldn't be what other people wanted him to be. And that's why so many of the Jews rejected him, because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. So it was in those times that Jesus had to always go to his Father for affirmation and confirmation. His relationship with the Father always took first place above all other relationships. He and his Father were one. And Jesus is very adamant that he is and was completely dependent upon his Father for everything. He and the Father were and are one. They were and are inseparable. They always have been and they always will be inseparably one. So what about the pressure Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, on the night prior to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus experienced immense emotional, mental, and spiritual pressure. You could literally say he had the weight of the world on his shoulders, because he really did. The weight was so heavy upon him that in Luke it tells us that his sweat was as great drops of blood. Bloody sweat is caused by extreme anguish and pain. This is extreme pressure. We're going to look at Matthew's account of these events in the garden, but let me give you some background information. Just prior to Jesus' prayer in the garden, he had been at the Seder, the ceremonial meal, the Passover. And at a Seder, there is the ceremonial part, and then there is Thanksgiving, the feast. <laughs> When we had a Seder here recently, we had hard-boiled eggs, right? That's how they begin their feast. In the middle of the ceremony meal is a Thanksgiving dinner. It is gigantic. You might think of maybe your Christmas dinner or an Easter dinner, but the whole family is there. That's Passover. And at Passover, you are required to be full. It's not just recommended, it's required. You have to be full, and you have to drink four complete glasses of wine. <laughs> Okay, so now you have 12 guys who are full <laughs> and maybe a little tipsy, but anyway, they are very relaxed. 
<laughs> on Thanksgiving, you usually have people on the couch going, oh, I'm so tired because you're full and you're comfy and you're cozy. Well, that was the disciples. And Jesus takes them out to the garden. In the midst of all this, being full and sleepy and full of wine, Jesus tells them he's leaving. And even though he told them he was going to be back, they couldn't get their mind off the fact that he was, they finally got the part he was leaving. <laughs> and they didn't like that part. You have to add sorrow. Sorrow is also a weight. Sorrow is also a pressure. So they have all of this on themselves. They're full, and they're warm, and they're cozy, and they're full of wine. And now Jesus has told them that he's leaving. So now they're full of sorrow as well. But see, Jesus tells them, even though they're full of sorrow, he says, rejoice! I'm going to the Father. I will be back. Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, why would Jesus tell them, let not your hearts be troubled? Because that's exactly what their hearts would be tempted to do, to be troubled. When the reality of Jesus' death hits them, it's going to pressure them into wanting to give up. It's going to pressure them into thinking, well, maybe he's not the Messiah. Maybe he's not the king of the Jews. At this point in the conversation, Jesus gives them an analogy about a woman who's giving birth. In John 16, 21, it says this, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus is saying here, Hey, guys, there is anguish. You are going to be in pain. There is going to be sorrow. There is going to be pressure. But be of good cheer. Because on the other side of that pain, on the other side of that pressure, on the other side of that trial, there's new birth, and there's new life, and there's new rejoicing. That's what Jesus was saying to them. But he was trying to warn them. You're going to have to go through the pressure first. Just like a pregnant woman. There's no getting around the pushing. <laughs> <laughs> in the book of John, in chapters 14 through 17, just prior to them entering the garden, Jesus can't talk enough about the fact that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him and that he gets to go and be with the Father. And he's so excited about his disciples and the rest of the world can become one with the Father. If you read chapters 14 through 17 straight through, you will hear the word Father 50 times. In fact, if you read it all the way through and then read the part of him in the garden, the garden episode is not in John. It's the only gospel that it's not in. But the other gospels don't have that whole conversation. The whole, Jesus is his prayer for his disciples, Jesus' prayer for himself. None of that is in, in the other gospels. When you read all of this father-focused conversation and then you come to the garden, you really see it in a different light. And I think that's what Jesus wanted them to know, is that when you're father-focused, everything appears in a different light. Now, when Jesus goes to the garden to pray and to prepare himself for what is about to happen, we see no evidence anywhere in the Scripture. For me, this passage of Scripture we're going to look at in Matthew 26 is the only place you really see Jesus is weak. You never get any indication from the time his ministry begins up until this point, that you would see a weakness in him. But yet he was 100% human. We know as a human being he got tired, he got hungry, 
You know, he got irritated once in a while with those disciples. <laughs> well, for me, I don't really see weakness until we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. But it is apparent that that's exactly what was happening. Jesus was feeling the weakness of his humanity in that garden that night. It is in this passage of Scripture that his humanity is made very apparent. Jesus feels the weakness of his humanity. Now we know he felt weak because in Luke's account, it says that in the midst of his praying, and he prays three times, in the midst of his praying, God sends an angel to strengthen him. You only need strength if you're feeling weak. So we know that Jesus was feeling apprehension and weakness about what he was about to go through. Beginning with Matthew 26, verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me, which means stay awake and pray. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch, stay awake with me for one hour? And I'm thinking, Oh, they just had Thanksgiving dinner and a whole bunch of wine. And they're really uh, sorry and upset. <laughs> and you told them to sit down. <laughs> Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Jesus said this because that's what he was experiencing. Jesus had just had Passover dinner too. (laughs) Jesus knows that in our spirit we may be willing and be in perfect accord with our Father and wanting to do exactly what he wants us to do. But then that flesh, our human body says, Oh, you're sleepy. Oh, you're full. Oh, so tired. (laughs) But he was telling them, Look, guys. I'm leaving, and for you to not stumble over my leaving, you need to be hearing the Father. That's exactly what Jesus himself needed. He needed to hear his Father. Jesus didn't want their flesh to pressure them to give up on believing that Jesus, who he says he was. And you see, after the resurrection, when the disciples are walking along and Jesus comes to talk to them and they're all depressed because, you know, Jesus has been dead for three days and they're like, oh, we thought it was him. They're losing faith in what Jesus had told them. That's what Jesus was saying. Don't let the circumstance dictate what you believe. Don't believe what you see. Believe me. Don't let the pressure of circumstances tell you what is and isn't real. Don't let your circumstances make your decisions for you. In verse 42, it goes on again. For the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Jesus was 100% human. And as a human being, Jesus felt the weakness of his humanity. Flesh will always put pressure on us to choose an easier, less painful way of doing things. In this prayer, we see Jesus simply asking if there is any other way to fulfill the plan of salvation. If there's a way that he could avoid drinking the cup of our judgment. If he could avoid the pain and the suffering. We do not see Jesus asking his father to change his mind. He's simply asking, is there no other way? If there had been another way, God would have done it another way. The only way for mankind to be saved was that our Jesus would bear our sins on our behalf. There was no other human being on the face of the earth who was the Son of God, who had the blood of God in his veins. I think also part of the pressure that Jesus was feeling was that he knew all the Old Testament scriptures. He knew exactly what was waiting for him. And if you're a human being (laughs) filled with God, could you face what he faced without the pressure being heavy on your heart? Jesus knew he was going to be beaten with fists several times. He'd be beaten by the Jewish soldiers, and he would be beaten by the Roman soldiers. He would be mocked, stripped naked, flogged, and abandoned by his disciples, and then nailed to a cross. That would certainly press hard upon any human soul. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him, and I believe that because he knew. See, it's one thing not to know what's coming, but to know what's coming, and to know that you have to stay under that pressure. When everything in you says, run away. (laughs) Avoid this. If at all possible, avoid this. But he doesn't avoid it. I so appreciate the fact that the Father sent an angel to strengthen him because the Word tells us that the angels are sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. Whatever pressure we find ourselves in, whatever situation we find ourselves in, when we're feeling pressed, not only do we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we also have angels. And God sends them to minister us to us and to go before us and to orchestrate things on our behalf. He has a whole army of angels. And even when Jesus is arrested, he says to one of his disciples, do you not know I could call my Father and he will send me? 12 legions, about 72,000 angels. (laughs) Jesus had a whole army of angels waiting to do whatever needed to be done, but this was something only he could do. Jesus had to look into the truth of the pain he was going to experience. In Isaiah 52, 14, it says this. It says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus knew that when they got done with him, he wouldn't even look like a man anymore. In Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 2, part B, it says this, speaking of Jesus prophetically, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 10, it says this, And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The apprehension of just the physical suffering would be enough to make anybody weak in the knees. But Jesus had even more pressure. Jesus would have to take on the sin of mankind. Jesus never became sinful. Jesus never became actual sin guilty. Jesus was an offering. He is the innocent lamb. And it was his innocent blood that we poured out. There is much teaching on this kind of concept today, that Jesus actually had a sin nature at this point, that he took on the nature of man's sin, that he became guilty in the sight of God. But I tell you, no. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead proves that there was no sin in him. Jesus was the bearer of our sin. He bore the punishment for our sin, but he himself never became sinful, ever. Now, all of this affected his body. All of this affected his soul. I'm sure Satan was right there telling him what a loser he was, how he must have failed his father. I'm sure Satan had a lot of rotten things to say. I'm sure he had a lot of pressure. I can just hear the enemy saying, who's going to believe in you now? As he's hanging there on the cross, who's going to believe in you now? But three days were coming. (laughs) Even while Jesus carried our sins and griefs and bore our iniquities and our transgressions, he remained perfectly innocent. I love the fact that his sacrifice is the perfect picture of the two goats on the Day of Atonement. The innocent one where no guilt was laid. The innocent kid whose blood was poured out. And yet the other innocent kid who simply bore the sins away. It's a perfect picture of what Jesus has done. Never did anybody become sinful. Jesus never became sinful. Because Jesus never became sinful, Jesus never went to hell. There's much teaching about this, that Jesus took on our sin nature and Jesus went to hell and suffered for us. But I tell you, no, because going to hell never pays for sin. There's only one payment for sin, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not go to hell and suffer. Jesus went into the place called Hades, and he took those who had by faith believed in the one true and living God and took them into heaven. And those who were in the place of torment went to a different place of torment. (laughs) But Jesus never suffered in hell on our behalf. You see, hell is a consequence. Hell is a consequence. It's not punishment for sin. It's not payment for sin. It's a consequence of not having life given to to us through Christ. Why is this important to understand? Because even though Jesus was hard-pressed, he was never abandoned. Jesus was never abandoned by his Father. So many are teaching that Jesus was so full of sin that his Father had to turn away and not look at him. That is complete nonsense. 
I was, uh, as a young Christian, in a holiness church. And so I was taught very early that Jesus was so full of sin that the Father couldn't bear to look at him, that the Father can't look on you when you've sinned, that sin causes God to turn his face away. Nonsense. The scripture that that idea came out of was in Habakkuk 1.13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. Thou canst not look on iniquity. And that's about where they stopped. You see, you can make a whole doctrine based on one sentence, or half a sentence. And it goes on, Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? It's a little easier to read in the New American Standard, which says this, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked are swallowed up by those more righteous than they? Habakkuk was actually mad at God for not killing people who were naughty. <laughs> He's like, these people need to be cut down right now. <laughs> but God always has long suffering. God always has mercy. God's always beckoning to people to come to him. God is not in any hurry to kill somebody. God doesn't go around killing people. But the whole idea that God could not look on iniquity. His eyes were too holy to behold sin. So if you sinned, you had to get yourself cleaned up before coming back to God. Does that make any sense? No, it makes no sense. We can't clean ourselves. There's no amount of soap and water that can make you clean. There's no amount of good works that can make us clean. It is the very blood of Jesus. When we sin, we come and ask for the blood of Jesus to cleanse our conscience. Because we want to know that we're at peace. We want to know that we're forgiven. God is not afraid of sin. God has defeated sin. God is not looking away from the world going, Oh, they're so evil, I can't look at them. No, he says, I love the world. I love them so much, I'm going to come and die for them. This whole concept that sin separates you from God, and God can't look at you until you get yourself right, is nonsense. Makes me angry. <laughs> God never turned away from his son on the cross. God didn't say, oh, son, I'm sorry. I'm going to step into the other room while you bear the sin of the world because you're too sinful now. I can't look at you. It's ridiculous. In John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, this is Jesus speaking. It says, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus is actually talking to scribes and Pharisees here. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, he's telling them, you're going to put me on a cross. He said, but I want you to know something. Once you do, that's when you're going to be able to see the truth. I am who I say I am. In fact, in this scripture, the word he, where he says, then you shall know that I am he, the he is not there. It was added by the translators for clarification. Then you shall know that I am. And he says, and then you will know I do nothing of myself, but I do what my father has told me to do. And he that sent me is with me. The father hath not left me alone. Jesus was talking about the time when he was on the cross, when they were going to shout to him, Oh, God has left you. You are smitten by God. You've been abandoned. You're a fraud. He says, you're going to know that I am who I say I am, and my Father is pleased with me. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, he said in John chapter 16, verse 32, 
He said, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, now is come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and ye shall leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. When is he talking about? When they got scattered is when Jesus got arrested, and they scattered, and they left him. Yes, they all abandoned him. Was he abandoned by his disciples and his followers? Yes. Did his father ever leave him? No. Jesus himself told us, Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. During that whole three days, they were scattered, and Jesus was never alone. You might say, well, what about that famous cry from the cross then? Matthew 27, 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So many say, see, the father forsook him. The father turned his back on him. He was so sinful, he couldn't look at him. He had to leave him alone. Jesus had to bear the cross and the sin of the world all by himself. What kind of father is that? To leave you when you are obeying his perfect plan and will. It's nonsense. Our father never left our savior. Many teach that Jesus was so hard pressed by the weight of the world that he felt forsaken. So that this cry was him in his deliriousness because of the suffering, the pain, and the loss of blood. Jesus didn't know what he was saying. More nonsense. <laughs> but they're trying to figure out why Jesus would say this. Why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look at real quickly here the seven last things Jesus said on the cross. The first one begins with his favorite word, Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That doesn't sound like he's delirious. The second one, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He said that to the thief that came to faith. That doesn't sound delirious. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Taking care of mama before he leaves. <laughs> Sounds to me like he's in his right mind. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. Why did he say that? Let's go on for a moment. He went on. He said, I thirst. They gave him vinegar. He said, it is finished. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Did any other rest of that sound like it was delirious? Did you hear any begging for mercy? You see, I could believe that maybe our father turned his back if he had said, my father, my father. Jesus never, not once, in all of his life in scripture, called his father God. He said his father was God, but he never called him by the name God. He always called him Father. And you know what? This is the only question amongst the seven things that he said. And it just happens to be the first line of a psalm, Psalm 22. Scholars say that in that day and time, if you could quote the first line of a psalm, all the Jewish listeners would know exactly that whole song because they sang them. It was their songbook. <laughs> they knew them by heart. So when Jesus cried from the cross, he was quoting scripture, something somebody in their right mind could do. Jesus wanted those who were watching because he told them, you're going to lift me up on the cross and you're going to know who I am. You're going to know that I am who I say I am. In Psalm 22, it says this, the first line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? This is actually David's psalm. But David has this really interesting knack of being prophetic. 
<laughs> and within his own cries, within his own song to God, God has placed the picture that when Jesus is on the cross, he can quote a psalm, and they're going to be able to look at that psalm and go, oh, this is odd. <laughs> what would they see if they sang their song that day? My God, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Hmm, Jesus cried out in three hours of light and in three hours of dark. He cried in the morning, and he cried in the afternoon. The word cry doesn't mean tears, it means to speak out. He was speaking to his father. And it says, yet you are wholly enthroned on all the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man. What was that about not looking human? Scorned by mankind and despised by people. It certainly was Christ. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, and they actually quote this in Matthews. It tells us that those who were watching, the chief priests and the elders, they said, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. They actually quoted the same psalm while they were watching Christ on the cross. It goes on, be not far from me, for trouble is near, but there is none to help. None who? None people. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. You, those are the chief priests and the elders. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water. That is our Jesus. And all of my bones are out of joint. And my heart is like wax. And it melteth within my breast. My strength is dried up. That's when he said, I thirst. My tongue sticks to my jaws as you lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs, you know what dogs are? Gentiles. For the Gentiles encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. Hmm. Sounds familiar. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. For you are my help. Come quickly to my aid. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. And verse 24. I love verse 24. For he, God the Father, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hid his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. Our Father never left His Son. And why do we need to know that? A whole bunch of the world, even the Christian world says, the Father left His Son to die alone. And it's not true. Why is it important that we know that our Father never abandoned His Son? Because Jesus came to show us what our Father is really like. And if the picture we have of our Father is that He forsakes or abandons us when we sin because of sin, then when we sin, it will be hard for us to believe that he won't abandon or forsake us. I can't tell you how many years I spent trying to clean myself up so I could come to God. Because I was told, you're not acceptable if you've sinned. We can begin to believe the lie that says we do walk alone when we fall short of God's glory. 
And then we can believe the lie that we have to somehow come up with the strength that we need to overcome the pressures and the temptations of our life. That is something that we have to produce. But if we know the truth, that the Father never left his Son, that he never turned his face away, that he did indeed hear and answer the prayers of his Son, even while he was carrying the sin of the entire world, then we can have confidence that God, our Father, will never turn his face away from us, no matter how big our sin, our weakness, or our temptation may seem or feel. Whatever pressure life brings to us, we need the same thing that Jesus needed when he felt weak. We need time with our Father. We need to take the time to tell our Father what's on our heart and to hear what's on our Father's heart. We need to submit ourselves to his perfect love, his perfect will, and his perfect strength. From time to time, we may find ourselves hard-pressed, but if we, like Jesus, will come to the Father, and that is the why he died, so that we can, that we can run to Daddy when things are not going our way, when things are going wrong, when we can't see because everything looks dark. We can know for sure our Father has never and will never turn away from us. Never. And if we know that he will never forsake us, never leave us, that's the whole reason Jesus came, so that we could come to the Father. Before he died, we couldn't. But now because he's died, we can And my encouragement for you today is that we remember, that we take Jesus' example, that we spend time when we're hard-pressed in his presence, that we spend time hearing him. We spend time letting him encourage us and strengthen us and knowing that if we need angels, our daddy's got angels. If he would not forbid his son, if he would not withhold his son from us, what else would he withhold? You see, everything is in Jesus. Everything is in Christ. Everything is in our relationship with the Father. And it's all available by faith, which is where we get our confidence. Our Father hears us when we call to Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your presence. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You that You are our God and our Father that we are one with you, the same Jesus was one with you. And as inseparable as the Father is from the Son, so are we inseparable from you. We can rest in your arms. We can rest in your truth. We can rest that the blood of Jesus is by itself sufficient for all sin and that nothing will ever separate us from you again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.